Well, and I need to share with you that there's only been, I could count on my hand the number of times that I've actually got to about Thursday morning and I have a message finished and ready. And in fact, this one was, was, so I felt ready for the message on Wednesday that I even opened up my Thursday morning to meet with one of our elders. I thought, I can do it. I'm on, I'm on top of this. And so Thursday morning in my time alone with the Lord, I'm reading in John 4, and I had been stuck in this passage of Scripture now for about a week, and I had been captured by this passage of Scripture. I'm praying, and as I'm praying about the message that I had written, I feel this prodding, don't preach that one. And I'm going, Lord, I put in how many hours? It's Thursday morning and I'm actually meeting someone and I gave away the morning that I usually would spend. I mean, if you'd have told me this before I made this meeting, it would have been. But I, I, I wasn't convinced. I felt like, you know, sometimes you don't know if it's gas or what's going on. So <laughs> I wasn't sure what this prompting really was about. So I meet with uh, an elder, Russ Farron, at Thursday morning and I'm, we're talking and sharing. And I start sharing some of the things that God has burdened my heart with about this passage of Scripture. And I said, you know, I've been just prompted, I think, to possibly speak on this. And he goes, you should. I really think you should. And it was not just kind of like, I think you should. It was like, Lord going, you better. <laughs> and so I said, okay, Lord, I'll do that. And I'll trust that you'll kind of help put these thoughts together. So I do only have about three minutes message here today. <laughs> you know, I've looked at John chapter four as a pastor a number of different times, but I've only spoke on it, I think, twice, once in a Sunday school class and once in, the, in a message, I think, 17 years ago. And when I spoke on that, I approached it from the standpoint of what it meant to engage in, in people's lives and to share your faith and to share about this incredible gift that God has given us, this living water. Over the last year or so, I have been just so captured by this realm of the Spirit, the fact that we have been called and been given this incredible gift, God, the Spirit of God, who is um, here as our counselor, guider. He, he's one who is to, to enhance and empower our life and to lead and guide us. So when God began to prompt my heart, and I've been speaking on leading and prompting, it only makes sense that he said, you know, Kevin, if you're going to tell other people to do this, get out of the boat. And as I read this passage of Scripture in John chapter 4, I don't have a lot of really, if I had a couple more days, I could have probably better headings for this. But I can tell you what I believe the Scripture has to say in its content and what I believe God is going to bring across is very important to me and to, to us as a body. As we think about what it means to, to pay attention to this, not kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God, which is way out here somewhere, but the kingdom of God, the realm of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit who lives within us and yet also allows for at times this tent between the physical and spiritual realm to break forth so that God does things. He uses His angels and accompanies and accomplishes work through us, with them. And in many ways, there is this veil that separates the spirit from the flesh. But what's really exciting is that God said, just like Jesus was really a portal, a, a avenue in which the spirit came, he was like a window. In many ways, we're a window as well. God uses us to allow the realm of the spirit to break forth and move in the hearts and the lives of people 
who see things most often from a physical plane or if they're beginning to in our, in our culture the today and they're beginning to ask questions about the Spirit, they're often not thinking even about the Spirit that comes that is holy. They're thinking about other spirits. And some of you may have seen, whether it's on Entertainment Tonight or some other kind of news shows, you can see from time to time people are talking about, in fact, I think it was Cher who was talking about that she's actually getting guidance from her husband who died a number of years ago. And a number of other stars are starting to, to look into this. Britney Spears, they actually are talking about, they actually, and she even admits that there's some evil kind, or there's some bad spirits, they talk about it. Folks, we are in a prime situation in our culture where we're not any longer just saying there's a physical, but there are people who really believe there's a spiritual realm out there. They just don't believe there's necessarily bad or good. They don't even know how to get in contact with it. And that's really kind of what you see when you see this played out in the story of the Samaritan woman. Here is this lady who really understands the physical, just like the week before when we looked at Nicodemus and you saw Nicodemus understood the physical. Here you see this lady um, whom Jesus encounters. And what I want to take you through is, is just John chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. And I'm going to kind of do this like I've done a couple other messages lately. I'm going to read through the verses and I'm going to comment on them. And at certain places, we're going to hold for a period of time. So don't get nervous if I'm, you know, only a few verses into it. I'll make sure we close pretty close to time. (laughs) Chapter 4, verse 1. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. I just want to make a statement here. This kind of movement of Jesus, I think, had to frustrate some of his disciples. He had zealots among him. He had people who wanted a material political kingdom to take place. And Jesus has this habit of whenever a crowd begins to really form around him, and whenever he starts to get a following, Jesus begins to start seeing what really is going on. And it's not so much that they're spiritually oriented, but they're really actually politically oriented. They really want him to become the king. And so Jesus goes, you know, this isn't what I really came about. So he says, let's go and let's leave. So that's what you see happening here. When the Lord learned of this, especially when he learned that the Pharisees had heard about the fact that he was gaining more popularity than John the Baptist, who had tons of popularity, Jesus said, let's get out of here. Not only was he concerned that people would try and make him this political leader and king in, in, a, in a material way, he was also concerned about the fact that he didn't want to cause the Pharisees and the religious group that was opposed to the move of the Spirit. You have to understand this. Jesus was not just about this. He was just not the God-man who came. He brought a move of the Spirit. And whenever the anointing comes, whenever the Spirit of God comes upon something, there will be those who in their flesh, and they can be believers, will be very upset. You can see it throughout Scripture. They will become upset at the fact that things aren't going the way that they, in their understanding, believe it should go. And so Jesus doesn't want to rile them up. He says, let's go to Galilee, because he knows in Galilee it's far enough away. Galilee is like the hills of Kentucky. He could go out there and he could minister and get things going without there being a lot of problems. So he says, let's go. Verse 4, though, is the one that captured my attention. He said, now he had to go through Samaria. What you need to understand is Jews didn't travel through Samaria. That was not a typical thing for a Jew to do. They would, in fact, even though Samaria up to where Jesus was going was the fastest, was kind of the shortcut, they would often take the way towards the Jordan. They would go around it and not even go into that land. There was such animosity and such hatred between the two groups. 
There was such not just spiritual religious tension. There was incredible racial tension. The Samaritans were half-breeds. They were Jews who had also, through some of the invasions, didn't really care about keeping their Jewish separateness. So they went ahead and they married and intermarried with other races. And so now there's this pure group, the Jews, who see the Samaritans and will not touch their soil. But Jesus had to go through Samaria. And I asked, when I kept reading this, I said, Lord, what do you mean you had to go through Samaria? I, I began to ask questions to myself as I was doing this through the, through the week in my quiet time. I, I was saying, why did you have to go through, through Samaria? I, I was asking, was Jesus late? Did he need to get back? Did he have to take the shortcut because he had either a bar mitzvah or a wedding or something planned? And then I realized as I was looking at this, um, I, I thought, well, maybe this was part of his mission. Maybe Jesus kind of thought, you know, I'll have to go through Samaria because I want people to realize that it's not just the Jews, but I've come for the whole world. But if you really look at all the writings of Jesus and all the things that he says in his life, that's not the case. He didn't have to because... This wasn't really on his itinerant preaching schedule. This was not part of the Save Samaria campaign. If you really look at Scripture, you'll see that Jesus had no intention of going to Samaria. In fact, I think that was very difficult for him even for himself to process, just like I was on Thursday morning when he said, you need to preach this. If you look at the life of Jesus, you'll see that in Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 and 6, he gives instructions to the 12. He wants them to understand when he gives the scripture and he gives instructions to them that they are to go to the Jews. They're not to go to the other parts of the world. They are first to go to the Jews. It says these 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or any enter any town of the Samaritans. Did you catch that? That's his instructions. Don't go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. That's who I've come for. That's what my mission's about. If you look at Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through about 31, sometime you'll see that at one time Jesus went up into this place called Tyre, and he was going up there in order to kind of get a vacation. In fact, it says he entered the house and didn't want anyone to know it. Yet he couldn't keep his presence a secret. He, you know, Jesus was a rock star, kids. I, I was in, just about a couple of weeks ago, I was in Nice, France, and we decided to go to the Cannes Film Festival. Not Cannes, I guess the French, the French told me. It's Cannes. We went to the Cannes Film Festival, and we thought, well, it would be kind of fun. And we're going along, and at one point, as we're walking down the road, there is a mob of people, hysterical, flashes flashing. And there's a Gucci store, and inside this Gucci store, I don't know who it is, so I asked someone who it is, and they have a broken kind of French, and they said, bah, 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 pity, And I said, something like, I said to my wife and another friend, something, pedidia. And they laugh, and then finally, I hear a little bit later, someone said, it's Puff Daddy. P. Diddy was in the Gucci store, and people, I mean, they were going nuts, and, and we, they, we thought, well, let's watch this, and for about 15, 20 minutes, he's in there, and he, he's trying to make his way up, finally gets the door out, and as he gets the door out, the crowd crushes against him, and he gets, and he, his entourage wasn't able to help him, the car wasn't there, and he slid from one door over to the next door of another store, and he got in. And you go, that's nuts. But folks... Jesus goes to a place that isn't a Jewish place, way out north. And he entered a house and didn't want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence a secret. And where he stays, a woman comes who is a Greek 
woman and she's born in Syrophoenicia area and she comes to him and she says, would you heal my daughter? She's possessed of a demonic spirit. And Jesus says, I've come for the Jews. He wants to make it very clear. That's my mission. My ministry is first to those who are Jews. And I haven't come in, 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 in Jewish terms. They would often say they would talk about Jews and they would talk about Gentiles as dogs because they were in that sense, not so much pejorative in the sense, but more in the sense that they didn't have a spiritual sense. And she says to him, get, but master, even dogs get crumbs from the table. And he looks at her and he goes, incredible faith. And she goes home and her daughter's healed. Jesus wasn't cutting through Samaria because he needed to get back, and I'll show that in a little bit later. He wasn't cutting through Samaria because he was on a safe Samaria campaign. He was, I don't even know if he knew exactly why he had to go, but in the scripture, when you read this, Jesus had to go through Samaria. You'll find that it's this divine imperative. John writes these kinds of, had to do this, or he was going in this direction and often when he would do that it would be this imperative that he knew that in his spirit he by his own human spirit paid attention to the holy spirit of god his father and he did what his father told him to do so he had to go it reminds me of chapter one of verse uh, of mark in verse 12 when we read at once the spirit sent jesus into the desert and the word sent, if you look at the word sent, actually means drove. It, the, the Spirit of God was so powerful in his life that it, in, in times it wasn't like, for me, this kind of, I think I want you to do this. Or for you, some of you, you know, this kind of touch and, and, and put. It, there were times when the Spirit was so on him, it drove him into the places he was to go. Or if you read as Luke says it, and this is one of my favorite passages, and we'll look at this in a couple of weeks. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. I love that. He's full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert. Sometimes God, gets, sometimes God leads you into not so good places. And you may be there right now. Because God's teaching you. He wants you to learn something in the place you're in right now. And you wonder how I got here. And sometimes it's because the Spirit of God drives you or leads you. And I love this last part. And I'll just throw this in for Jesus returned to Galilee, it says, after that experience, in the power of the Spirit. And you need to watch this in Luke. You need to watch it in Acts. We're going to look at it in a few weeks. That you find Jesus was full of the Spirit. He was led by the Spirit. But the power of the Spirit came at a later point. And I just say that because I think there's a lot of people, a lot of bodies that aren't living in the power. or They're not allowing for the power to come at times because we so much need to kind of control things and do things in our own way. We're not willing to go under the suffering that brings about the kind of character that forms us to be the kind of people so that the Spirit of God can just flow through us. Well, that's not what I wanted to preach about. So Jesus had to go. Not because of an intended mission to the Samaritans. Because I think his mind would have said and was saying, no, I don't want to go through Samaria. And I think because of his Jewish background and even the sense of things that he had been taught, the antipathy that they would have towards people of Samaria, I think his emotions were saying, no, I don't want to go. But you know what? The father said the spirit prompted and he said, go. And Jesus went. What about you? There are times your mind is going to say, like mine did, you know, God, I put a lot of work in. I feel pretty good about what's been prepared. I don't really like it. My emotions were anxious and saying, I don't want to do this. And God was saying, you know what? doesn't matter. Are you my servant or not? Jesus had to go to Samaria. 
In the next part, I just titled The Scandal of the Spirit. And in all honesty, this is what captivated my heart the most this past few weeks, this, this last week, really. I, I just cannot believe, if you really let this soak into your heart, that God the Father loves, loves people so much. He doesn't care what racial boundary you're across. He doesn't care what gender. He doesn't care. He doesn't care how immoral you have lived your life. I just was struck with this. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. I'm going to get going here. Sychar is known as Shechem. There's a famous well. I'm not going to tell you a whole lot more. I sometimes wonder if, as people are going through, you ever see those roadside markers? I always want to stop at them and, and look at what the historical thing is. Anybody have? I think there's like one in every family. Yeah, right? And the other one's going, let's just get going. I just sometimes wonder if at Jacob's well there was historical marker. You know, Jacob's well. Anyway, um, Jacob's well was there, verse 6. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. He was exhausted. And John includes these truths for a purpose. He wants us to know how incredibly human Jesus was. He was just like you and me. He was in the same place we are. He has been given a spirit. Our spirit needs to be awakened to the Spirit of God. When it awakens to the Spirit of God, then God leads us by His Holy Spirit. In every way, Jesus depended on the Spirit's leading and guidance. He gave up his divine attributes. You need to know this. When Jesus had to go and when he came to this place, he wasn't coming out of some sense of divine attribute that was leading him. He was being led as a human, both God and man, but being led by the Holy Spirit. It was about the sixth hour. The sixth hour in that time was high noon, according to the Jewish clock. And it was during the heat of the day. And Jesus came to the well and he was exhausted. I can almost see him saying to his disciples, go ahead, if you're hungry, see if there's a McDonald's or a Lund's or some other kind of thing in Sychar. I'm staying by the well. I just want to rest. But I think there was something more. I just wonder if the Spirit of God wasn't still prompting him and saying, I want you here. Verse 7, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? John puts his little editorial in here. His disciples had gone into town to buy food. Don't forget, here's where the disciples were. It was Jesus and this woman. And the Samaritan woman, verse 9, said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And then John puts another little editorial parenthesis in there and he says, For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. In fact, he adds a footnote that some, I think, in some translations, in order to let you know more fully maybe what she was implying, which I think maybe she was implying when Jesus asked for a drink, he was asking for her to draw from the bucket that, he, that she had and then to use the utensil that she would pour into the water. I think he was saying, could I take a drink? And she was, in a sense, saying not only did Jews not associate with Samaritans, but beyond that, she was saying they don't use the utensils that Samaritans use. That's incredible racism when you think about it. You know what? I won't even use the utensil you use. I was watching a DVD the other day, The Great Debaters. I don't know if you've seen it. It's been out for a while. It's about a small town in Texas, about a small college. There, a black uh, debate team was winning and winning and finally took on the team of Harvard, and they beat them. But I was appalled by one of the scenes. It just struck me because I haven't grown up in this. Here is a young lady waiting for a train to go to the college, and as she's sitting at that, standing at that stop, there's no one else there. She's alone, and behind her is a bench that says, for whites only. I, just, I, I couldn't believe 
that's what's going on here. Jews, you don't drink. You have for whites only. You have for Jews only benches. You have to understand the scandal. Here is Jesus, who is a Jew, a rabbi. He's coming to this town and he actually goes through Samaria by his father's orders and directions. He's sitting at a well, exhausted. A woman comes up. He knows it's noon. He knows it's the heat of day. People don't go to the well during the heat of day. The only time you go to the well during the heat of day is when you're carrying a whole lot of shame and you don't want to meet anyone else. So she not only was an outcast in the sense of being a a Samaritan racially, not only was she a woman because rabbis didn't speak to women, but beyond that, she was an outcast in the very town that, in the sense that she lived in. She didn't want to see anybody. In fact, if you read on just a little bit further, you'll find if you look at chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, that Jesus says to her at one point, go, go get your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, yeah, you're speaking with truth right now. You, and she goes, yeah, I, I had five husbands and the, the one I'm with right now, I'm, I'm just living with. Get this in your heart and your mind. Jesus, God the Father, the Holy Spirit, so desires for us to reach to all people, to those whom our society even considers outcasts. He is more concerned for us to have a heart of love that is selfless out towards others than He is concerned, folks, about what we do even here on Sunday mornings and the way that we worship Him. That's the priority. That's the issue. And Jesus and John wants to make this clear. And he says to, to, to this woman, knowing that she's carrying a great deal of shame, he asks her for a drink. He asks her to do something for him. Because Jesus listened and he, he loved just like his father did. All people had worth in his eyes. Zacchaeus, a traitor, a tax collector in a tree, a woman caught in adultery, a man living in a cemetery, cutting himself filled with thousands of demons, a bunch of fishermen, tax collectors, adulterers, and it says in, in Scripture, sinners. And Jesus was spending time and getting to know them and was coming down to their level so that he could meet them where they were at. It reminds me when I read the story of Hudson Taylor, a great missionary who opened up China, in a sense, for the, for the gospel. Many had gone there before to try and reach the people. Hudson Taylor comes there, and he begins his ministry for, I think it was a year or more, where he was, like the other Western missionaries from England, <clears throat> would come into the place, and he would preach and he'd teach. He'd learn their language, and he would preach and he'd teach, and he'd wear a suit and a tie. No one came to faith. They weren't coming to faith. Some, one day, in his own quiet time, he has a prompting, a nudging of the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God is saying to him, <clears throat> just like I sent my son, the Father sent the Son to identify holy and become like man, fully. You need to become like them. You need to let go of some of your cultural preferences and the things that you think are important. And you need to dress like they do and look like they do. And he did that. And he began to preach in, in the same garb that they had. And do you know what happened to him? The people who were in his missionary, a number of them, not all of them, but a number of them, were offended and they carried a sense of reproach. How can he take Western garb off and how can he do that? And yet, as he did that, people began to come to Christ. Because he was willing to set aside his preferences. He was willing to identify fully with them. 
Because Jesus wanted all people to know the Father's love and he would meet people wherever they were at. He put his preferences aside. He gave up his rights. He became one of them to reach them. I was reading this last week in a book by Erwin McManus called The Unstoppable Force, which the church should be. It's daring to become the church God had in mind. And listen to what he writes. He says, in a sense, the church has lost its edge, the edge that Jesus carried. He says, we've been taught that we are the center of the universe and we evaluate everything on its ability to meet our demands and needs. Some of the best communicators of Scripture who I have known have had people leave their churches for the express reason that they're not being fed. I know that we are the sheep of God and sheep require the shepherd to feed them, but there must come a time when we, the sheep, become shepherds who feed others. There's got to come a time, there has to become a time when it's not about being the ABF or being in a Bible study, but it's about how do we turn around and we actually engage others. And we do this as a body and we do this individually. And then he goes on, is it really about us being fed? I think that this is interesting. I think it might be important to remember that over 60% of Americans are overweight or even obese. Is it possible that this is also true in the arena of personal spirituality? I think he's saying, is our, have our spirits become just bulging? Are we too much about getting fed and too little about exercising our faith? McManus continues, to many of our statements about the crisis in the American church, too many of our statements about the crisis in the American church center on the superficial arena of style, like, like Hudson Taylor and style, what you wear, that kind of stuff, and neglect to go to the core issue of self. At the core of so much of the resistance the church is experiencing is the preservation of selfishness and self-centeredness. And he makes a statement, it's one thing to have a preference, it's another to demand that one's preference be honored above the needs of those without Christ. Let me read that again. It is one thing to have a preference, it's another to demand that one's preference be honored above the needs of those without Christ. I'm sure Christ's preference was not to enter into humanity. I'm sure it wasn't his preference to give up the privileges of all that he had as the Godhead. I'm sure it wasn't his preference to have people misunderstand him and people um, um, insult him and people ridicule him. I'm sure it wasn't his preference to suffer and to be beaten and to die on a cross. But he did so because he loves you and me. That's the kind of love that drove him. That's That's what I call the scandal of the Holy Spirit. Oh, we've got to go real fast. Okay, I'll just do this quick. Verses 10 through 15, Jesus says, answers, says, If you knew the gift of God, who is, who, is it, who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And you've got to pay attention, gift of God. We usually think, well, is, it, is he talking about Jesus? Really, the gift of God, he says, if you go on, is not, it obviously is about a relationship with the Father through Jesus. But it, it's really directly more than that, according to the Scripture. Jesus is more specific. He calls it actually living water. Listen to what he says. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our, fa- our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself? As did also his sons and his flocks and his herds. And like we saw last week, people don't get it when you talk about the realm of the spirit. Nicodemus, when he asked about being born again, what does he say? Do I get back in my mother's womb again? He thinks physical. He thinks material. That's just naturally where we go as people. Understanding the spiritual realm isn't something natural to any one of us. 
We need to not only be born into it, but folks, that's why I'm preaching this message. We need to grow in what this means. So in a similar manner, her first reaction is very much about the physical. She says, sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw the water with and the well is deep. Where are you going to get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us a well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and the flocks and herds? So Jesus again clarifies this. He answers, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And you have to ask yourself, so he's talking about living water. Living water was water that came from the spring. Dead water was water that would be trapped in a cistern or be in some kind of like pond. Living water had, the, had a source from which you did not know where it came from. And the gift of God, he said, was referring to this living water. And just a simple manner of, of hermeneutics, this idea of how do you interpret Scripture, how do you know what living water is? Well, a very good principle is to see what does it say within the very context. But if you don't have living water defined in the context, the next thing you do is you find out where Jesus or John, the author, talks about it again. So if you just go up a little bit into chapter 7, verse 37 through 39, you know exactly what Jesus is talking about. He is talking about a relationship with his Father, but he's talking more than that. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. If you look at verse 37, it says, On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and in a loud voice he said this, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. And here's John's comment again. By this, he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. And so Jesus says, I want to give the Spirit. If the book of John, if I was to tell you about the Gospel of John, you know what a lot of the Gospel of John is? It's, it's to identify who the Messiah is, but beyond that, it's to prepare people. If you look at chapters 14 through 16, and you continue on at the latter part of the, of the Gospel as well, it's to prepare people for the fact that God has given His Son Jesus, and it's through Jesus that we enter into relationship with God, but it's through the Holy Spirit that He gives us that our life takes on the incredible ability for His Spirit to begin to move through us. If we're willing to let Him do it, if we're willing to cast aside the things that we think need to be done, and we say, God, would you prompt us? Would you move us? Would you lead us? Always, always, let me say this, always in line with what the Word of God has to say. But not necessarily in line with their preferences. And so he makes it very clear. He says, he says to her, and boy, I just don't have time to go through this, but if you look at chapter 6, verses 16 through 26, I love it. It's one of my favorite parts of Jesus. He says, now let's get real. Because if you don't expose the need and get real with people, you can't help them. If you come in with masks, you're not going to be able to get to the real person. If you live with a mask with another person, they'll never really get to know you and you'll never have heart-to-heart um, relationship. And so Jesus wants to get real. He asks her how many husbands, you know, get your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. He says to her, yep, you've had five and now you're living with the six. Jewish standards said you could have three husbands and after that you're a little suspect. Okay, that's that was in the code of the rabbi's law. Jesus is so cool because he says to her, you know what? You have been thinking that somehow this this man will fill your life or this relationship will that it will be intimacy or it will be something that your heart longs for. And there are people here today and I want to speak to you, especially graduates. You may think it's by an education or by getting the right job or finding the right spouse that somehow that will fill your life. I can tell you it is something that God gives you as a gift that can add to your life. But only that which will satisfy and fill is this living water, which is a source that comes from the from God, who is a spirit who resides in you. And as you begin to open your life to him and you say 
Make your way known in me and I will follow. God will do things in your life that you could never, ever contemplate. And I'm not saying they're all going to be good. You'll go through tough times because the important thing of God is not to provide happy meals to make you happy. The importance of God is to quench your thirst so that he can develop your character so that in your character you can begin to do the things of God so the kingdom of God can live in and through you. And he not only wants to do that individually, he wants to do it corporately with the church. And here's what I want to close with. And that is this. The disciples come back. They're surprised. You can read all that. It's all in your Bible. But here's the thing. It's, I, I just want you to know. The Spirit stays where He's welcome. Verses 39 through 42. The Spirit comes at times. I believe the Spirit is coming here. I believe the Spirit of God, like it says in Revelation, when He says, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. It's not knocking at a person's heart. The Spirit of God in Revelation is knocking at a church's heart. I believe the Spirit of God has been knocking at the hearts of the church out in this western area for a long time. And I think He's saying, I want to come into a church. I want to come into a people who will set it aside and not be concerned about stylistic things, but be concerned that God's love begins to pour through their lives. And he's, and here's Jesus, who I don't think intended to go through Samaria. He didn't have a safe Samaria campaign. Emotionally, he would have rather gone the other way. And here's Jesus. He comes in. He follows God. He meets with this woman. God meets this woman's need. This woman runs back to the town. She tells everybody about him. And then listen to this. This is what he says. Verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So, when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. He stayed two days. He never intended to even go there, I don't think. And I'm just so impressed with that. And because of his words, many more became believers. He wasn't even doing... It doesn't say because of his miracles. Often to the Jews, it says his miracles. Here were people whose hearts were ready, who were willing to say, we need you. And in fact, it goes on and it says they urged him to stay. And what I find most amazing is that Jesus, who made it clear that his mission wasn't to Samaritan or to the Gentiles, but was first and primarily to the Jews, decides to stay two days where he's asked. And I just say, friends, I don't think that's any different today. I think when we come to communion, we come together as a body and we say, God, we are so willing and desirous that your spirit move through us to do that which is good and to love us and to make an impact, as we said the last number of months, in this community to do good. To be a church that doesn't just support missions, but a church that is on a mission to bring the love of God to anybody he calls us to. And I go, that's cool. And, and God's waiting for that. And I'm gonna cl- I just want to close with this story. I read it in, in Rolling Stone magazine. Some of you are going, you what? I like to read all the different viewpoints. I'm reading this story of Bono, the singer, lead singer of U2. And Bono is talking about to this magazine about his call, in a sense, to those who are suffering with AIDS and those who are um, in poverty in Africa. And they're upset at one point that he would even meet with President Bush and that he would even begin to talk about how that Republican government can actually do anything with it. And Bono's response, I love it, is, is pretty much, look, at, I, there's a lot of politicians I don't agree with. In fact, most of them. But this is far bigger than politicians and what they believe. This is about meeting needs of people who are dying and starving. And he says, so put your little politics aside to Rolling Stone magazine. 
And at one point they say to him, he goes, they say to him, you, you almost sound like you're called by God to do this. And he goes, well, let me tell you a story in the Bible. This is Bono of you two. Let me tell you a story in the Bible. There's a guy named Jacob and Jacob had a desire. Jacob didn't really care about the blessing of God. In fact, at one point he actually sold it for hardly anything to his brother. I mean, um, Esau, he had a brother Esau. Esau didn't care anything about it, but he had a brother Jacob who wanted it. He wanted the blessing so bad. He said, I sometimes just feel like I'm a little Jacob looking up at God going, I want your blessing on this. And I just thought to myself, and he kind of makes it to the point, he says, I, I don't think God's real choosy. I think he's just looking for hands that say, let me do this. I think he's looking for your hand. I think he's looking for our hand corporately that says, you know, God, we'll get out of the way and we're going to let your love come because you're God and we just want to be servants and do what you want us to do. Let's pray.